All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you today, and, and let me just start by sharing something else that's encouraging. Uh, my wife, Kim, uh, came down last week, and, uh, and we, got, we got to talking at the end of her visit. She headed back, and, and she was saying that, that she actually feels like, you know, like, TCBC is a great church, uh, but there's even something else going on here. It's even more exciting. TCBC is great, and it's getting better. And I asked her, I said, well, so why, why do you think that? She said, she just had some conversations with people. Uh, that was just exciting and showing a sense of momentum in their life, and also the worship services uh, have been significant too. So I just want to encourage you. Sometimes we get so involved in, in life and ministry, you don't get to hear what else is going on. And I just want to let you know that there are some great things going on here. It's great to be at TCBC. Um, and that's a great time to be here. We're a great time to be in this sermon series by way of orientation. We're kind of halfway through uh, this sermon series on the life of promise. Lots of progress. So students, how about you? I know all of you are just brilliant students. I mean, you don't get into U of I uh, if you're not bright. So how are you doing in your studies? Are there, is there progress academically? Have midterms come and gone yet? Yeah, they have? Great, great. So you're making progress. Good stuff uh, happening there. Um, you know, when I was in my undergraduate, I wasn't really that focused on my studies. Uh, down south, we'd say something like this. You know, some of you guys and gals are going to graduate summa cum laude. And some of you are going to graduate magnum cum laude. I graduated. Thank you, laude. Glad to be. <laughs> so if you're not at the top of your class yet, that's all right. Uh, I feel your pain. Kind of glad it's your pain right now, not mine but I feel your pain. All right, so here's an old saying I just made up. I don't know what that means either, but here we go. Uh, it's about experience uh, and wisdom. Experience is what you get firsthand when your EQ and your IQ are insufficient for the realities at hand. That's one way to look at it. And some of you are smiling. You've been there. You've done that. And some of our experiences are far enough back or by God's grace, we've grown enough through them so that, that we can smile at them now. We hardly even remember them now. So a show of hands on this. I want, you to, I want you to be courageous. Have you ever had the experience of losing a job or leaving a job under difficult circumstances? Okay, some transparent, courageous people out there. That's good. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, I mean, I can experience... I can smile at this experience of mine now, and, and really I can hardly even remember it because God's grown me so much through it. I mean, I, well, it was, I don't know, maybe about 15 years, four months, two days, and about 16 hours ago. So it's so far behind me, I hardly even remember it. But over 15 years ago, I sat in a congregational meeting, hundreds of people, more than how many are gathered here right now, where my resignation was being announced to the church. And it was as the result of some shared experiences. Anybody had those? Maybe, yeah, maybe you have. Um, have you, can you kind of feel my pain a little bit? Well, those shared experiences were not all my bad by any means. I mean, the lead pastor and I, we kind of butted heads. Uh, we were both responsible. And there were times that if you had come into the room, 
with us? If you'd have walked in there, you'd have told us both, Simba, down, okay? Take a chill pill. Here's a Skittle. Taste the rainbow, for goodness sakes. Take a relaxative, you know? So at least in part, though, the experiences uh, where firsthand encounters were my EQ and IQ were insufficient for the realities at hand. A wry thought did come to me in that meeting, though. I remember thinking, you know, we might have shared the experiences, but I was the only one getting the consequences. Hmm, that hurts. That's hard. Now, I can honestly look back and say, thank you, Lordy, okay? Thank you, Lordy. You allowed me to experience that because it planted a, a deeper desire to live in patient humility with others. So experience is what you get firsthand when your EQ and your IQ are insufficient for the realities at hand. And wisdom, oh man, wisdom. That's where you glean from other people's experiences. Insight, your gain from their pain. Now you know why wisdom is so greatly prized by everybody. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning is part of Jesus' larger teaching section in Matthew 18. You can turn there now if you'd like. Matthew 18, lots of wisdom there for us. Uh, This parable, it's not called the unemployed servant, though he does lose his job. Uh, it's, It's about the unforgiving servant, and it's through unforgiveness that this servant loses everything. And the instruction from our passage today can kind of be summarized like this. God's mercy makes us His, and God's mercy is ours to give. Let me repeat that. God's mercy makes us His, and God's mercy is ours to give. Now, that almost sounds like it's like the decision for us to share God's mercy with others is solely up to us, but that's not true. So we're going to unpack that through this message. Uh, What's obvious but helpful to say right now is if we have received God's mercy, we have it to give to others. And we can't help but give it to others. So turn to Matthew 18, chapter chapter 18, verse 21 uh, through 35. And this parable kind of reads like three scenes in a play. And so I kind of laid it out like that. Scene one is an accounting with forgiving. Scene two is an accounting without forgiving. Scene three is an accounting with eternal judgment. No no doubt about it, uh, this morning we're going to see that forgiveness is a serious work of God for us and through us. And the prelude that sets up this parable is Peter's insightful question and Jesus' very unexpected response in verses 21 and 22. Let me read that. 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy, seven times. So let's stop here for a moment. These two verses serve as the prompt for the parable that's coming. Peter's very practical question suggests that You know, maybe there is a limit on how much we 
should forgive another person. Well, the accepted rabbinic teaching of that time was to forgive three times, and then no more was needed. But Peter's been around Jesus to know that more is expected. Now, obviously, sinning hurts everybody involved. So, too, forgiving is hard on everyone. But it's also eternally rewarding. And it's part of Jesus' yoke that we take on as his followers. So Jesus' intent in verse 22, it's not to encourage us to fastidiously keep track of our brother's offenses against us. This is not, well, okay, Tommy, let me pull out my sin tracking app here. I've had to forgive you 273 times. You've blown through half of your forgiveness passes. Pretty soon, I won't have to do it anymore. No. Jesus' use of 70 times 7, 490 times, means no counting, no limit. No limit on the frequency of forgiveness. We go all in on forgiveness every day. Jesus is saying, someone who repeatedly sins against us receives genuine forgiveness the 490th time just as he or she did the first time. To forgive means to cancel or pardon a debt. And this debt could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. And when you cancel a debt, financial, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise, somebody still has to pay. If someone has lied to you or mistreated you and you forgive them, you don't make them pay for what they did to you. That emotional debt, that hurt, doesn't magically go away. You absorb that hurt. You absorb that emotional loss. You don't retaliate and hurt them back. You don't make them pay. That's what forgiveness is. It's kind of a simple concept to understand, but it is pretty hard to do. And now looking at it from the other side, here's a partial list of what forgiveness is not. I, I got this from the trauma healing resource that you know, Dan and Rachel Coombs have been leading over the last year, year and a half. Uh, the resource says, uh, here's what forgiveness is not. And here's a, just a partial list. Forgiveness is not saying that the offense doesn't matter or that it doesn't hurt. Forgiveness is not being able to make sense of why a person did what they did to hurt you in the first place. Forgiveness is not letting those who do wrong avoid the consequences of their actions. Forgiveness is not letting the offender hurt us or other innocent people again. Forgiveness is not trusting a person right after they've hurt you. Do you hear the wisdom in that? Forgiveness is costly, but it's not crazy. Now, let's watch the curtain go up here. Scene one, an accounting with forgiving, starting at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Notice in verse 23 that there's a king in authority. And it's to him that an accounting must be given by his servants. And it's not often that, that Jesus always explains his kingdom parables, but he does here. To make sure we get the point, Jesus says in verse 35 that God is the king. And believers are his servants. Disciples are his servants. Jesus is saying that servants, believers, are accountable for, and they've got to explain how they've handled the kings, God's resources. And here, one of them has failed miserably. And you don't get this parable if you don't understand how badly he's failed. I calculated precisely how much 10,000 talents in the first century is in money today. And to the penny, the servant owned precisely a gazillion dollars. Okay? Jesus' point in, in choosing this ridiculously large amount is so that we can't count it. It is so much. Don't even try to count it. Just like Jesus told Peter earlier, we don't count the number of sins to measure if someone is deserving of our forgiveness. So too here, the loss to this king is incalculable. By the way, the commentators that I read said that this loss is actually in the billions, maybe even hundreds of billions of today's money. So we've got this incoherent, stammering, panicking servant. Uh, he could never pay his master back, no matter how much patience he asked the kings to show him. And the king knows it. The king knows it, and out of pity, the king forgives the debt, and then he reverses his judgment of, of what would have been the destruction of this servant and his family. Now, to show pity on someone means that we respond to them, we forgive them out of being able to see ourselves in the same situation as the person who just offended us. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, uh, in forgiveness, we see ourselves and our offender and the failure of humanity that we share in common. I like that. Shared experiences come from our share in the failure of humanity. Uh, Dan Coombs sent me this similar quote from uh, Miroslav Volf that reads like this. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the offender from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I like that. That happens. Now, that's verses 23 through 27. And wouldn't it be great if verse 28 read like this? The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt, and everybody lived happily ever after the end. That'd be great, wouldn't it? That'd be a fairy tale ending, wouldn't it? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus is not preparing us to live in a fairy tale world, but a fallen world. Here is the opening of scene two. It's the accounting without forgiving, starting with verse 28. But when that same servant, the one who was just forgiven, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused 
and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The main point of these verses here is to recognize that the servant who was just shown pity has no pity for his fellow servant. The forgiveness by the king of a massive and unrepayable debt owed by the first servant, it has no lasting impact on that servant. Being forgiven much himself doesn't translate to him forgiving or even being patient with the repayment of a minor debt to him. A verse shows us the, the first thing that the servant did after being forgiven so much. Right away, it says he went out. He was intentionally looking for another servant who owed him a few bucks. He found him, finally grabbed him by the throat and tried to make him pay right there on the spot. Instead of waiting, probably no more than the, the four or five months it would take to get fully repaid, he throws his fellow servant in prison, and now we're left wondering why. I mean, in those days from a debtor's prison, it was possible to earn payment towards a debt. But at best, it was a fraction of one's earning power outside of the prison. From the inside of a debtor's prison, financial transactions of one's resources moved slowly. Sometimes they were prohibited all together. So putting this other servant in prison just doesn't make sense unless the servant was refusing to pay at all. But all we can say is that it looks like the servant who owed the hundred denarii, he acknowledged the debt, can pay, desires to pay the debt in a reasonable amount of time. But still, he's just treated harshly by the fellow servant. Now, we're not going to spend much time on verse 31, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, don't you think? I mean, we have fellow servants really going to bat for this other servant. I mean, this isn't forgiveness to them. They sense a significant justice, injustice has been done, and they're going to intervene. How about you? Have you ever done that for someone? Have they ever done that for you? It's not the main point of the parable, but it's worth noting that intervening in the face of injustice is commendable. Sometimes it has immediate results. So the unforgiving servant reveals that in his heart he is impatient, he is without pity, without mercy, he is unforgiving. So let's see how that works out for him in the end. Scene three, it's the accounting with eternal judgment. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus closes with this, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now remember, we were scratching our heads a little while ago as to why 
This servant who was forgiven so much could not forgive so little, but threw him in prison. Well, the king answers our question right here. He says the servant did that not because he was a wise servant, but because he was a wicked servant. That word translated as wicked is used by Jesus in some of his other parables in Matthew, primarily when he's describing this type of servant at his second coming. In every case, the final disposition of these wicked servants is being put in a place of eternal torment, torment, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, so it's not pretty. Now, beyond pity, uh, we don't know the reasons that originally it prompted the, the king to initially forgive the massive debt that the servant owed. Uh, we could guess. Maybe earlier the king thought to himself that the servant maybe just had some, he might have made some bad financial decisions. Maybe he just got a little careless. Maybe he was disorganized in his planning. But now the king knows. The king knows the real reason is not that the servant fell on some hard times, but that this servant has a hard heart. The unforgiving servant's wickedness is not about a bad streak. It's about a greedy heart. And in verse 34, the king gets angry. I mean, the king has a right to get angry. Merciful is the rule of this king. Forgiveness is the coin of his realm. And that is just like God. You remember how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 33, 19? Moses had asked to see his glory. Show me your glory, meaning his sovereign character. And God showed himself and said this about himself. God said this to Moses. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Some will receive grace and mercy at God's choosing, and some won't. Only he gets to determine for eternity mercy for the undeserving and punishment for the unrepentant. And God, the king, rightfully expects, expects us, his true servants, to forgive, to show grace and mercy too. But if you th prove through your actions that you do not have the kingdom values of mercy and forgiveness, the king will imprison you. If in your heart the accusation of wicked servant is true, then the consequences are chilling. In verse 34, that, that word jailer there, it's probably better translated as tormentor. I mean, there is pain and suffering in that imprisonment. I mean, people aren't sitting around playing Settlers of Catan and Pandemic there. I mean, this is real suffering. This is actually a reference to eternal judgment. And in verse 35, that's the promise that Jesus makes to any who think but do not truly have the same Heavenly Father as Jesus. Here's a jaw-dropping promise to all who think but are not truly spiritual family. The promise is that they will receive divine justice at the standard of divine righteousness because they do not manifest divine forgiveness. In his commentary on Matthew, D.S. O'Donnell says this. He says, there will be no forgiveness in that day, judgment day. 
There will be no forgiveness in that day for unforgiving people. He goes on to say, there is no such creature as an unforgiving Christian. That being does not exist. Christians forgive. We forgive because we've been transformed by the power of the gospel. And at the end of verse 35, I, I think the reason does, Jesus doesn't stop at forgive your brother, period, but goes on to say from your heart is because we can fake forgiving. We can fool others in ourselves. We can play mental games. That We can talk ourselves into showing faux forgiveness. But in our hearts, we know. We just want to get even. Here, Jesus points to the very place that's the core of who we are and says, from the heart, from the deepest and truest part of us, that's where forgiveness must originate and permeate and emanate. But it takes a transformed heart. And that transformation is beyond human ability to accomplish. Nobody can morally muscle their heart into divine forgiveness. In terms of our parable today, believers are servants of the king. So we have to have the heart of the king to forgive like the king. And both Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13 have this phrase describing the quality of every Christ follower's acts of forgiveness. It goes like this. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. No wiggle room there. Now, as I wrap up, I want to remind us of kind of the obvious, which is if we've not received the Lord's forgiveness, we can't give it. I mean, we can't give what we don't have. And this is way deeper than just understanding the concept of forgiveness. That's information. It's also living out forgiveness from our heart. That's transformation. Big difference. Now, the message this morning is hard for all of us, whether we're truth-oriented or relationally-oriented. I mean, if we're more truth-oriented, we're going to struggle with a sweeping magnitude of God's mercy and forgiveness of so much destructive sin, maybe even done to us. We may find ourselves like Peter, kind of wanting to limit the forgiveness to those that we think are deserving. As the cost of forgiveness mounts in us, we may feel like somebody somewhere has to pay. For those of us who are more relationally oriented, we're going to struggle with God's unflinching demands of righteousness. I mean, we're all responsible for what we think and say and do, and wrongly, we just kind of want to blanket forgiveness. Just can forgiveness be in the air out there? We struggle because we don't want, we don't want it to be, we don't want it specifically being held accountable for addressing the destructiveness done to us or the destructiveness, destructiveness in us for our sins. And then the rest of us who think we masterfully balance the relationships with truth. We struggle with what Katie did a great job of preaching on last week, which is our pride. 
and self-righteous achievement. So we are all challenged by this parable of Jesus. I mean, we love God's mercy makes us His, but we struggle with God's mercy is ours to give. Most of us know that mercy that we receive from Jesus is the foundational mercy that He provided for us on the cross. If you're here and you've not received that mercy, know this. Jesus paid the incalculable debt of the wrath of God that is due you for your sins. Your sins are forgiven because Jesus paid your debt. But His payment is not yours until you ask Him for it. You must acknowledge that you're accountable to the King for the debt of your sin. It's an incalculable debt that you cannot pay, and then you've got to ask Jesus to pay it in your behalf. Now, if you want to do that, come see me or one of our shepherding team after the service. We'd be glad to help you with that. And if you're here and you have received that mercy of forgiveness by the Spirit of Christ that now indwells you, what you have received, you must now share with others. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7, twice he says this, you were bought with a price, you're not your own. So giving mercy, expressing forgiveness is really not just our decision to make. We're responsible to lovingly obey from the heart. And we know that our forgiveness of others, that's not a condition of our salvation, but it is a consequence of it. I like O'Donnell's phrase here. He says, if the gospel of forgiveness gets in you, it comes out of you. Mm. All right, applications for us abound. So here are two overarching questions to get us started. First, what offenses do you find the hardest to forgive and why? I mean, discerning what most readily hurts us is kind of a window into our heart. If we look, we will find the gospel of forgiveness sheds light where deeper healing needs to take place in us so we can show greater mercy to others. Second, where, uh, who do you find it hardest to forgive? And why is that? Is it a family member? Is it people in authority? Is it people of another eth ethnicity? If we look, we will find the gospel of forgiveness does certainly uh, reconcile deep hurts in us and dispel pervasive fears. I'm going to pray for us. And during this time when the music plays, think about these questions. And if you're courageous enough, write them down on your connection card, and we'll join you in praying for that. Let's pray. Father, in your word, we, we recognize the challenges that are before us. And in our hearts and minds, we've seen what We've seen what your son provides. And if we're Christ followers, we've experienced that forgiveness ourselves, a, a debt that we could never pay. Father, as your spirit moves in our hearts and minds, I, I would ask that you would help us to see what the sins are, who the people are, 
reflects more wickedness than biblical wisdom and compassion. Help us to, to see those things, change those things. And Father, we know that if we have areas that we're struggling in, uh, we recognize that uh, you know, where we're struggling does not preclude us from your kingdom if we're always already your children. You just have some more work to do in our hearts. But if we have not received the forgiveness that your son provides, Father, I ask right now that your spirit would bring a, a sense of, uh, of accounting before you. A sense of accounting that would melt our hearts to understand, wow, there's a debt that I cannot pay. But Christ has paid it for me. Jesus, put your righteousness, put it to my account. Take this debt of wrath that is your Father's. Your death on the cross has paid that for me. And then live out of the truth and the power of that gospel, the gospel of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.